We're going to begin to look now at God's covenant with David. We have been talking about uh, covenants preceding this covenant with David, and we've talked about five of them. The first two are not explicitly called covenants in the scripture, but they do partake of the character of covenants, and therefore I think we may call them covenants. The first is God's covenant with Adam in the garden before his fall, and the second is his covenant made with Adam after the fall, as implied in Genesis 3 verse 15, where he promised the seed of the woman and victory over the seed of the serpent to that seed of the woman. The third uh, covenant is the Noahic covenant. And again, we really have two covenants here. In Genesis chapter 6, at the end of that chapter, you read about a covenant that God made with Noah. That was before the flood. And then in Genesis chapter 9, you read about another covenant God made with Noah after the flood. Uh, in the fourth place, there is the covenant God made with Abraham. And again, there are, we may say, two formal covenants that God makes with Abraham. First in Genesis chapter 15, and then again in Genesis chapter 17. And finally, we looked at the Mosaic covenant, and here we saw that there were really three formal covenants. First in Exodus chapters 20 to 23, which are called the Book of the Covenant. Then in Exodus 34, after the sin with the golden calf, and God renewed the covenant he had made in Exodus 20 to 23. And the third one then in Deuteronomy, verses, uh, chapters 10 to 28. And what we've seen as we've looked at these covenants is that they do not stand alone that instead they build on each other. Promises made in former covenants are sometimes repeated in the new covenants, and sometimes they are even in part fulfilled in the new covenants. And as God then makes his new covenants, he adds new and richer promises regarding the future so that there is a development, a flowering of the covenants and a further revelation of the purposes and promises of God in the succeeding covenants. So these covenants that God made with his people in the Old Testament are not new covenants in the sense that they abrogated the old covenant, that the old covenants were done away. The old covenants continued in the new covenants. And this is especially important, I think we saw, with regard to the Mosaic Covenant, because there's a clear relationship between Abraham, uh, Moses, and then, as we're going to be seeing today, David. These are all covenants with the people of Israel. God, with Abraham, singles out Abraham and his seed as his people, he then forms the seed of Abraham into his people at Sinai with the Mosaic Covenant. And he uh, 
gives to that covenant people with David a king to rule over them. So these covenants are very clearly related to one another. They do not abrogate the old covenants, do away with the old covenants, but add to the old covenants. And God continues to work with his people in the same way in each of the covenants. Always in all of them looking forward to the covenant with his people in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as Paul says in Galatians 3, the law was not against the promises of God. And the Davidic covenant, which we're going to be talking about now, does not do away with the Mosaic covenant. Everything that happened in the Mosaic covenant, everything that was given in the Mosaic covenant, continues in the uh, Davidic covenant. Nothing is done away with. So the former covenants are still effective. And let's go back and let's just look at that, first of all, very briefly with regard to Abraham and Israel. As God came to Israel at Mount Sinai and made his covenant with him there at Mount Sinai, God did not do away with the promises made to Abraham. He had promised them the land. And he was now giving them the land. He had promised Abraham a numerous seed. Israel was the fulfillment of that promise of the numerous seed. The whole law of God then that he gave at Mount Sinai also then remained in effect with the Davidic covenant. Nothing was done away with. Nothing was changed with regard to the law that God had given to Israel at Mount Sinai. All the sacrifices, all the ceremonies, all the ritual cleansings, all the laws about priesthood and everything, all these laws remained with the Davidic covenant. And there's even a relationship between the Davidic covenant and the covenant with, uh, made with Adam after the garden because the believers in the time of David are still looking for that seed of the woman that God promised in Genesis 3, verse 15. And in fact, that idea of the seed of the woman becomes more narrowly focused in the Davidic covenant, especially on David and on the descendants of David until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people of God at the time of David were still living under the promise and sign of the Noahic covenant. The rainbow was still there for them as a reminder that God had promised that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. And there was still implicit in the whole Noahic covenant as it stood at the time of David, the promise of a heavenly country, which God, and a new heavens and a new earth, which God would give to the seed of the woman. So the Davidic covenant, just like former covenants, fulfills the older covenants in part, but also enriches those former covenants with new revelations about the purposes and promises of God. And that's the, where we want to begin then. As we look at this covenant with David, we want to see first how this covenant fulfilled former covenants and former promises. And I think there are four promises that God had made in earlier covenants 
that we see fulfilled in part in the covenant with David. The first of those promises was the promise of kings coming from Abraham. God made this promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. So God made that promise of kings coming from Abraham already to Abraham in Genesis 17. And this uh, fulfillment, the fulfillment of this promise that kings would come from Abraham is then anticipated in the law in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and following, where God makes various rules about uh, the coming king. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And then in the following verses, he talks about how the king who is to come is to have a copy of the law of God by him. So that old covenant, which God made with Israel at Sinai is to be kept by the king and is to be his guide in his ruling of God's people. This covenant then, this promise made to Abraham that kings would come from him, is also um, demonstrated, the need for it is demonstrated in the book of Judges. Perhaps you'll remember that in the last chapters of the book of Judges, beginning with chapter 18, you have repeated several times, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was even a king of sorts at, in the book of Judges, Abimelech, the son of Gideon, but he was not the king whom God spoke of in Genesis 17 or in Deuteronomy 17. Nor was Saul the first king of Israel, the king whom God had spoken of. Saul was really, in a sense, the people's choice. Though, though God chose him, God gave to the people the kind of king they wanted. He was not, Saul was not the man after God's own heart. So the king who really fulfilled that promise to Abraham was David, the one who is called the man after God's own heart. And this is very clearly shown to us in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7. When Samuel went to anoint David at the command of God, then uh, Jesse, David's father, brought all his sons to Samuel and uh, 
those sons then were presented to Samuel. And as Samuel was looking at those sons, he, he looked at Eliab, the oldest son, and he said, surely this is the one whom, the God, uh, whom God has chosen. And God says to Samuel, no, this is not the one. You are looking at his outward appearance But the Lord looks at his heart and the Lord proceeds then to reject all of Jesse's sons until none of the sons who are present there have been uh, accepted by him. And Samuel has to call Jesse and has to ask him, do you have yet another son? And then Jesse brings the, the forgotten son, David, the man after God's own heart. And God says to Samuel, this is the one. This is the king who will fulfill my promise to Abraham. And we note very clearly then, too, in David's history that he never was really the man after Israel's heart. He was persecuted and pursued by King Saul for years because Saul did not want him to inherit instead of his son Jonathan. Most of Israel followed Saul. When finally Saul was killed, then only the tribe of Judah accepted David as their king. And he reigned only over the tribe of Judah for uh, seven years, while Israel continued to follow the house of Saul. And it was not until the house of Saul had been wiped out that finally Israel accepted David as king. He was not the king after the people's heart. He was the king after God's heart. He was the one whom God chose as the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. So that's the first promise, then, that God fulfilled in his covenant with David. Choosing him to be the king who would fulfill the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 17. The second promise that was partly fulfilled in the covenant with David is the promise of the land. The promise of the land was first given to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now note carefully the boundaries there. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now the river of Egypt is not the um, Nile River. The river of Egypt is another river further east on the Mediterranean coast. And that was the, the boundary then that God promised would be the boundary of the land he gave to Abraham and his seed. And then uh, if you go to the other end, to the northern boundary of that land, you have the river Euphrates. So that's the extent of the land that God promised to Abraham. And this promise of the land was first fulfilled to Joshua and Israel under Joshua. In in Joshua 23, verse 14, uh, Joshua says to the people of Israel, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls 
that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass. Not one word of them has failed. So God had promised Israel the land. Joshua says he has given you the land. And in that same uh, speech that Joshua made, we should note, he also reminds the people of Israel of the curse God had pronounced against them in his covenant at Sinai if they would disobey. So he says in verse 15 of Joshua 23, Therefore it shall come to pass, that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. So he tells Israel, the Lord has fulfilled his promises to you, beware lest you break his covenant, and he also fulfilled those threats which he spoke in Deuteronomy, especially at Mounts Ebal and Gerizim. But there's another thing that's important here. When Joshua says that the promises have been fulfilled, it's very clear that Israel had not yet conquered all the land that God had promised to Abraham. If you go back for a moment to Joshua 13, you find there that the Lord said to Joshua, you are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains, all the territory of the Philistines. That's down in the southwestern part of the land promised to Abraham. All that of the Geshurites, that's up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. From Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Akron northward, you can uh, take that as part of the territory of the Philistines, which is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, and the Akronites, also the Avites. From the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Miara, that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Aphek, that's up in the northwest part of the territory promised to Abraham, to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon, that's on the northern end of the land, toward the sunrise from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath, and that's up by the Euphrates River. So this is all the land that they have not yet conquered. The promise to Abraham has not been completely fulfilled. That promise continued then to be fulfilled in the years following the death of Joshua. You read about some of it in Judges chapter 1, as Israel continued the work which God had given them to do. So you find in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. 
So Israel is continuing this work that had been given to them after Joshua's death. And during the period of the judges, you have, I think, little bits and pieces of this work continuing to be accomplished. Most of the time when Israel has victory over its enemies during this period, those enemies come from outside the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there are a few cases, the Canaanites and the Philistines, this is at the time of Gideon and at the time of Samson, who were uh, uh, nations within the boundaries of the land promised to Abraham. These were enemies that then were defeated by Israel during that time. Saul continued this work to some extent. He fought against the Philistines and took some territory from the Philistines, so he didn't completely subdue the Philistines during his reign. It was at the time of David, finally, that the promise that God had made to Abraham concerning those boundaries of the land, was fulfilled. David conquered the Syrians, the Moabites, uh, extended the boundaries all the way to the river Euphrates and all the way to the uh, river of Egypt. So that we read in 1 Kings 4, verse 24. 1 Kings 4, verse 24. This is with regard to Solomon. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, that's the river Euphrates, from Tifsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. So it was with David and with Solomon then that that promise of the land was fulfilled in its typical Old Testament form. Of course, that promise refers to heaven also, and we'll be talking about that later. So that's the second promise that was fulfilled in God's covenant with David. The third promise is the promise, I will be your God and you shall be my people. God spoke this promise to Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now, God had fulfilled that promise in part at the time that he formed Israel into his people at Mount Sinai and established among them his house, the tabernacle and came to dwell in the house. That house represented the fulfillment of that promise, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. But the tabernacle itself was an impermanent house. And David wanted to build God a permanent house. And so we have a better fulfillment of that promise in the temple with David and with Solomon. We can read about this in 1 Kings uh, chapter 6, verse 13, first of all. This is in connection with Solomon's building of the temple. And God says, we'll begin at verse 12, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, and that's, of course, the law as given at Mount Sinai, 
then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And then in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 to 13, this is at the dedication of the temple. You read this, And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. God is coming to dwell in this new house that has been built for him. Then Solomon spoke, the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house a house that's more exalted than the tabernacle, and a place for you to dwell in forever. Verses 23 and 24 of that same chapter. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. And in verse 57, again of that same chapter, 57, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us. So all of this refers to that promise, I will be your God and you shall be my people. But in the temple, there is a richer and fuller revelation of that promise than there was in the tabernacle. And you can see that, of course, in the lengthy descriptions that the scriptures give to us of the preparations that David made for the building of the temple, all the gold and the silver and the wood and the stone and the precious uh, uh, jewels and and everything else that David gathered together for Solomon to build the temple. And then in the, in the very rich and glorious temple that Solomon himself built. You read about it in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 14. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 14. Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, this is David talking, and 1 million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond measure, for it is so abundant. I have prepared timber and stone also, and you may add to them. So we have a permanent house, a much more rich and beautiful house than the tabernacle, and a house in which the worship of God is also better than it had been before. You remember how David in 1 Chronicles 23 and 24 divided the Levites into families and into courses so that they could perform different functions in the new house of God. And I think you see this especially in the Levitical choir and the psalm singing. There was no singing in the tabernacle at all. But David uh, arranged uh, a group of the Levites into uh, courses for the singing of psalms and for the making of music before the Lord. First Chronicles 25 is where you find that. And David himself, of course, wrote many psalms. About half of the psalms in 
the book of Psalms are assigned to David and those whom David appointed to uh, lead the music in the temple also um, wrote some of the Psalms, Heman and Ethan and so on. You find their names also there in the headings of the Psalms. So that this worship of God was greatly enhanced by the singing of the Psalms in God's house. So the promise, I will be your God and you shall be my people, is the third promise that God fulfilled in part at the time of David. And the fourth promise then, and this is where we come to the close of our first part of our study of David, is the promise of rest, the promise of the Sabbath day. Now we have the Sabbath day beginning, of course, in Genesis chapter 2. There is uh, some reference to it, as we've seen before, in Genesis chapter 6 with regard to Noah. So you find there, in regard to Noah, at Genesis chapter 5 it is, rather, At the end of that chapter, when Noah was born, his father Lamech called him, Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. That name Noah is one of the Old Testament words for rest, which appears also in the fourth commandment or a form of it, appears in the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20. So you have with Noah already something of a fulfillment of that idea of the Sabbath, and in that covenant made with Noah then, in Genesis chapters 5 and 6, God is giving Sabbath, giving rest to his people. The idea of the Sabbath, of course, was made very prominent in the Mosaic Covenant. You have it in the Fourth Commandment, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. There are many other Sabbath Sabbath days that the Israelites had to observe throughout the Old Testament. And the tabernacle was called the place of rest. In Psalm 132, God speaks of the tabernacle as his resting place. This is my resting place forever, he says. And it's in that tabernacle then that the people of God find rest as well. God comes to dwell among them. He has his house of rest among them and he brings them, symbolically anyway, into that house to have rest with him. This idea of rest then was tied to the land. The land is the land of rest. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8. Deuteronomy 12, verse 8. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. 
So he says, you're going to come into the land of rest. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. And then you're going to have a central uh, place of worship where you must bring all your sacrifices. That's my house of rest, my resting place forever. So the land is the land of rest. The tabernacle is the house of rest. And the temple is an enhanced, a more beautiful and uh, better house of rest for the people of God. It's in David and Solomon that we find this. It's in David, in fact, also, that we find God giving to his people rest, finally, from all their enemies. Joshua had conquered many of them, but not all. Some of them were conquered during the time of the judges. Saul had done some work in this regard, especially against the Philistines. But it was to David that God finally gave rest from all the enemies of his people. And Solomon, therefore, is called, in 1 Chronicles 22, the man of rest. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 9. This is David, our God talking to David. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. And then notice how the house of rest is immediately associated with him. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So what we see then in the time of David and Solomon is God fulfilling promises made to his people in earlier times, in former covenants. The promise of a king, the promise of the land, the promise I will be your God and you shall be my people and the promise of rest. As we continue our study, then, of the covenant with David, what we're going to see is that God is now enhancing his promises, and especially enhancing his promises in the promise of a king to sit on David's throne forever. That will be the subject of our study for next time. But this, then, shows us, again, how closely connected the um, history of Israel is with all the rest of the history of the Old Testament and how the covenants of God with his people all tie together and uh, develop and enrich one another. And this reveals to us then the unity of the Old Testament and the unity of the Old Testament with the New Testament under this idea of the covenant the promises of God, all of which point ultimately to our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you with his word.